Welcome to Faster Please, the podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas. Several times a month, I'll feature a lively conversation with a fascinating and provocative guest about how to make the world a better place through scientific discovery, technological innovation, and economic growth. You're also going to want to check out my Faster Please newsletter here on Substack throughout the week for fresh essays, Q&As, and stories from around the internet and around the world. Skeptics joke that nuclear fusion is the energy source of the future and always will be. But when the Biden White House made a big announcement about the progress of nuclear fusion last week, I'll bet even the skeptics took note. My guest on this episode of Faster Please, the podcast is Arthur Turrell, plasma physicist and the author of 2021's The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion and the Race to Power the Planet. Arthur, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So on December 14, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm announced that researchers at Lawrence Livermore Lab had succeeded in generating a net energy gain fusion reaction. Just how consequential is this? Jim, I would say that we're witnessing a moment of history, really. Uh, Controlling the power source of stars, I think, is the greatest technological challenge humanity has ever undertaken. And... Actually, I think if you look back at human history, there are going to be different stages where we've unlocked different types of energy sources. You can think about unlocking wood. You can think about, you know, when humans started to use coal, which has uh, which packs in more energy than wood. You can think about nuclear fission, uh, which has even more energy than coal, a lot more because it's a nuclear technology instead of a, a chemical one. And then you can think about this moment when we have the first proof of concept of using fusion for energy. And of course, fusion unlocks huge amounts of energy, 10 million times kilogram for kilogram as compared to coal. There are two main approaches to fusion, as I understand it. This was what they call inertial confinement, and then there's magnetic uh, confinement. Does it make a difference as far as where this technology goes, that it was inertial confinement versus magnetic? It's absolutely a, a huge scientific achievement. And the, the level of precision and the level of innovation and invention that the researchers at Lawrence Livermore have had to deploy to get here is just uh, an, an astonishing feat on its own, even if we weren't talking about how this could eventually change the supply of energy. Um, does it get us anywhere? Well, I, I think the honest answer is we don't know. Uh, we, today, we don't know what version of fusion, what way of doing fusion is going to ultimately be the one that is the most economical and the most useful for society. But what I think this result will do is have a huge psychological effect, because throughout fusion's history, uh, researchers have said, hey, I'd really like to you know, build a, a reactor, a prototype reactor. And funders have quite reasonably said, we don't even know if the principle works go off and show us that it can produce in principle more energy out than is put in. Um, And of course, fusion research has been trying to do that since the 1950s. Now we finally and absolutely have proof of that. I think that it's going to crowd in innovation, interest and investment in all types of fusion, because even though this approach got to that milestone first, it doesn't necessarily mean that this is going to be the most economical or the best in the long run. I think it's Benjamin Franklin who gets the credit. At least that's what I learned in third grade for discovering uh, electricity, you know, in the in the 1700s. 
Um, he didn't get the first electric motor into the 1820s. And he really didn't get factories sort of electrifying uh, their their factory floor really into the, the first decades of the uh, of the 20th century. So this could be mm. an amazing discovery, mm-hmm. but you won't be using fusion power. It could be a it could be a long time just based on how fast it takes uh, advances uh, sort of be modified and diffuse into an economy. It could be quite some time, if ever, before this actually, you know, gets plugged into a grid. Right. I mean, you know, traditionally, these new energy sources take a long time uh, to come on stream. So one of my favorite facts, and I have to double check that I've got the year right here, but I think the first solar cell uh, was working in 1883. And only now in the last few years has solar energy become, um, you know, commercially viable in terms of cost. So these things take a long time or they have historically. And here's the really important point. Uh, It's never about the amount of time. It's about the amount of investment and uh, political will that we put behind it. And, you know, if our elected representatives choose to really push this and and put lots of funding behind it and the private sector decides that it's really going to push this, things will move much faster. Uh, And, you know, like, you know, correspondingly, if if we don't put lots of uh, investment behind it, things will move more slowly. But you're absolutely right when you say that there is uh, a gap here between what we've seen, which is an astonishing experiment, but only scientific feasibility and what you'd have to have for fusion to energy to be on the grid, um, which is, you know, solving some of the engineering and economics challenges uh, that stand in the way between this one off experiment and doing this repeatedly and economically at scale. For decades, there was very little in the news about fusion research. And since 2019, there have been some big stories about the advances happening in government labs and also about the work of the private sector. It seemed like there was a lot of excitement even before this announcement. I can't believe this won't generate even more interest. Absolutely. And, you know, I think um, actually th- this has been building for quite a long time. It's very tempting to say not much has happened in fusion. But I think if you look back over the decades, um, there have been improvements. They've been quite steady and they've probably been coming at the rate you would expect with the level of investment and kind of dedicated resource it's had. But the improvements have been arriving quite steadily. And um, looking at the history of this particular experiment, a national ignition facility, when they've got improvements since 2012, when they really started this this type of campaign, um, the improvements have have resulted in a kind of five or six times increase in the release of energy. So back in um, uh, 2019, uh, when the book I wrote about about this came out, I sort of said, well, you know, they're not actually that many improvements away. Um, so if they can carry on on the same trajectory, uh, they're, they're going to crack it at some point. And, you know, last August in um, 2021, uh, they got to uh, 70%, which at the time was a, was a record, a world record as well. And it's kind of like, you know what, because fusion scales non-linearly, especially in this type of doing fusion, this laser fusion, uh, actually, you know, they're almost there. And it's just a matter of time until they crack it. So I think it's been building for a while. And the huge successes, because things have just happened to have gotten close now after all of this time uh, in both magnetic confinement fusion and in inertial or laser based fusion, uh, mean that that has really stimulated the private uh, sector as well. And the whole thing is starting to build on its own momentum. And I think that now 
this is going to cause the wave to crash over. And we're going to see uh, efforts to turn this into a power source be completely electrified by this news. If what happened at Lawrence Livermore Lab, if that in itself does not present an obvious path to commercialization. So what else is going on that seems more obvious? Because we, So we, we differentiated between um, a magnetic and inertial confinement fusion. Yeah. fusion. Other people will point to uh, deuterium-tritium fusion versus a-neutronic fusion. Where, where is the most likely path, and it doesn't come from government, from the private sector, that will lead us to a commercial reactor? Well, of course, it's hard to know exactly, but um, we we can certainly make some kind of sensible guesses based on what we know today. So the first, you know, to answer the second part about deuterium tritium fusion or um, uh, a neutronic fusion. So just just so your listeners are aware, these are about different types of fuel that we're putting into fusion reactions. So the first kind, deuterium tritium, those are just special types of hydrogen. And frankly, all of the really serious attempts to do fusion today are using these uh, because they require much, much less extreme conditions than the other types of fusion reaction. Though people get very excited about the type of fusion that doesn't produce any neutrons, so a neutronic fusion, uh, because uh, it, it has less radioactivity, but it's much, much harder to do. So I suspect we will. Well, is it crack. a better? Would it be a better power? Some people said, "Well, with uh, deuterium-tritium fusion, you're just, it, it, you're just, you're, you would still need some sort of, you know, a boiler. You'd be using a steam turbine, Absolutely. just like you Absolutely. would if it was coal. While yeah. with uh, a neutronic, actually creates electricity itself. In principle, yes. I think you, you, you know, the the. People haven't really demonstrated that that principle in practice. But yeah, that's why people are excited about it, because, you know, every time you change energy from one type to another, um, you lose some of the useful energy. And, uh, you know, you just have a more direct setup with the a-neutronic fusion. But I, I think that's some way away. I think in terms of what's kind of, uh, you know, practical for the next steps to, to getting to um, an energy source, there are paths using both this inertial approach and using the magnetic approach, um, in, some of the private in, some of the private sector companies are using this magnetic confinement approach. I think Commonwealth Fusion Systems. That's what they do. That's right. Yeah, and Tokamak Energy as well. Mm -hmm. So um, th there are you know there are pros and cons of of both different approaches in terms of the kind of approach that the National Ignition Facility is taking. There's some big technological gaps in terms of something that looks more like a power source. So yeah, this was a single shot of a laser on a single experiment. If it was to be anywhere close to being a useful power source, they would have to do probably 10 shots on that laser a second. And instead of a gain of 1.5, so instead of getting 1.5 units of energy out for every unit of energy you put in, you'd have to probably get at least 30 units of energy out than you put in. Now, as I say, the way this thing is kind of scales non-linearly mean, non means that you might get there faster than you think, but it's still a big technological gap. And even if you solve all of that, of course, you've then got to do what you said. And, and you know, ultimately, we're, we're extracting the heat energy and we're using it to turn water into steam and we're powering a turbine. Now, what some of the people who are working on this magnetic confinement approach would say is that even if they haven't got to net energy gain yet, they have created a lot of gross energy. So they um, have generated about 30 times more gross energy than NIF produced in, in um, output energy uh, in a single experiment. And... Uh, they would say that some of the steps further down the line are a bit easier to achieve on magnetic confinement fusion. But honestly, I don't think we really know yet. And um, because we don't know, we probably 
it's a good thing that we have both public and private sector exploring a range of different options here. How seriously should I take anybody who gives me a date? How confident should I take that? Any of these predictions at this point? Well, that does depend, Jim. Was it the president of the United States who who said this to you, or uh, because <laughs> you know I feel like he's he's uh, he's got some control over it. Yeah. I, I think the first question to ask when anyone says that is at what level of investment, right. because that's the thing that's going to make the difference. You know, if we stop all funding to fusion tomorrow, if you know people decide to do that, then it's going to take forever. Um, but equally, if if President Biden says it's going to take. 10 years and he says that you know he makes a commitment to put in the money that could potentially make that happen then i'd take it a bit more seriously i think 10 years is a very tight time scale but you know we saw in the pandemic how even untested technologies can be deployed at great speeds faster than anyone could have imagined where there is the political will and you know the kind of societal need and the money to make it happen why why is this an interesting source of energy. Yeah. So nuclear fusion, I mean, it's interesting scientifically because, you know, every time you go outside on a sunny day, um, those rays you're feeling on your face from the sun are generated by nuclear fusion. So this is literally the, the, the reaction that lights up the universe. It's the reaction that created a lot of the elements that we're made out of, particularly bigger elements. And it was right there at the start of the universe as well, creating some of those fundamental um building blocks of, of life so uh, it's an extraordinary reaction and it's amazing to kind of start to be able to control it but there are practical reasons even if you don't care about the science at all there are practical reasons to get excited about nuclear fusion as well um it's a very it's potentially a very safe source of energy so there's just no chance of meltdown it's not a chain reaction if you turn off the laser or you turn off the magnets the whole thing just stops so it's hard to start easy to stop it also, as as far as we can tell, um, isn't going to produce any long-lived radioactive waste. So it will produce some from the reactor chamber itself. So not as a byproduct of the fuel, unlike fission. Um, maybe the reactor chamber at the end of the plant's life might be low-level radioactive for about 100 years, as opposed to the potentially thousands of years of fission. Um, so that's another advantage. I should say, though, that fission is an amazing power source and we should be doing a lot more with it. And actually, if you look at the data, it's very safe. But, it, you know, some people don't like it regardless. That's right. And then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's difficult to get it built. Right. Um, and then the other thing is that, um, you know, renewables are fantastic as well. They work today. Uh, they're never going to run out uh, in any practical sense. But they do have this problem that they uh, need to use a lot of land area or a lot of uh, sea area to generate relatively small amounts of energy. And, I, you know, so I, th I think you've always got pros and cons of these different energy well, sources. You need batteries too, right? Because of the intermittency potentially, issue, you need, yeah. you need a lot of batteries, big batteries. Potentially you need batteries too. And like, you know, batteries that, you know, are batteries a bigger technological challenge than than getting fusion working on the grid? I don't know. So I'm kind of probably a bit more relaxed about the batteries thing. And I think, you know, intermittency it can be a problem with them. But also, you know, land is at such a premium um for other things for food for people to live that i think that ultimately might be the the bigger issue and also people don't want to have these things built you know they get blocked uh often whereas fusion and fission you know 
potentially, well, definitely in the case of fission, but almost certainly with fusion as well, the actual land area for the amount of energy generated is very, very attractive. So that's another reason. And finally, the fuel for nuclear fusion isn't going to run out anytime soon. So there's enough of it on the planet to keep everyone on Earth. So the fuel for the uh, uh, the kind of fusion we're talking now, the deuterium tritium, where does yeah. that fuel come from? Yeah, so um, deuterium is so they're both special types of hydrogen. So ignore these like quite wa quite wacky names. They're kind of special rare types of hydrogen. Uh, but the thing is, they're not that rare. So um, deuterium um, is one of the ingredients, and about five grams of every bathtub of seawater is deuterium. So there's just absolutely phenomenal amounts of it in in the sea. And chemically, it's exactly the same as normal hydrogen. So if we extract it, it doesn't really matter. It's not going to change anything, the fact that we're using it up. And then the other ingredient is a bit more tricky. It's something called tritium. It's very, very weakly radioactive. Um, it, it's only harmful if you were to, to ingest it. Um, but the problem is it decays over time into other things. So there's not very much of it around at any one time, but you can create it and you can create it from another element called lithium. Uh, lithium is very common in, in the earth, uh, both in ore and in seawater. And, you know, um, there's there's plenty of that to, to go around as well. Although, of course, it, it does have some other uses, for example, in, in batteries. So between those two, uh, that's how you do it. Now, there's problems, you know, how do we get the to turn the lithium into tritium that, that needs to be solved on the kind of engineering side. Uh, but in principle, we've got enough fuel for thousands, if not millions of years of energy uh, for everyone on the planet to have the same level of consumption as people in the US, which you might be surprised to hear is quite high. So this was net energy gain, more energy out than put in. But you also talk about something called wall plug energy gain in your book. Is that the next big step? You know what? It it kind of depends where we want to focus our efforts, actually. There are a few ways we could go right now. So just, you know, for the benefit of your listeners, um, in this experiment, what they're measuring is the energy in is the energy that was carried by those laser beams to the target and the energy that came out of that target from fusion reactions. Now, to actually power up and create those laser beams took a lot more energy. Um, so while, you know, about three megajoules of energy came out of the target, it took 400 megajoules to actually charge up the batteries that or the capacitor banks, as they're called, to actually create those laser beams that, that had the two megajoules of energy in. Um, now, wall plug efficiency would be generating more energy than this entire system. Um, so more than the 400 megajoules and more than the entire facility. So the thing to say about the National Ignition Facility is it was built to do ignition. It was to, built to do the scientific bit. So they never cared about the fact that their lasers are horribly inefficient because they knew that wasn't really what, what they were aiming for. And um, so what I suspect they will do on this machine, which is really built for, for optimizing what happens at the target end, is to try and up the gain as much as they can, perhaps to a factor of four or five times rather than one and a half times as they've done here, which is probably about the limit of this particular machine. But in the long run, of course, um, we've got to generate more energy than the facility as a whole. And that means probably going up to gains of at least 30 times. Um, and eventually, you know, if, if you're doing this form of fusion in a power plant, you'd use way more efficient lasers. This thing was designed 20 plus years ago, and uh, the laser efficiency is below 1%. There are lasers around today that, that can fire much faster, 
and which have a 25% efficiency. And they're still not quite there in terms of energy terms, um, but, you know, with a bit more technological tweaking, maybe they could be. Um, so, that, you know, there, there are lots of ways to get over this wall plug efficiency uh, issue in the future. We haven't optimized for that. That is a good next challenge, but there are other parts of the problem that you could work on too. When you look at what government's doing, what some of these private sector companies are doing, what ultimately is the path that you sort of get most excited by and you're like, you know, I don't know for sure, but this is this could be it. This is this is not investment advice. No, it's absolutely not. It really depends on on what kind of a commitment. I mean, I think um assuming things carry on in much the way they did yesterday and the day before, which is not a given, of course. Um, I think probably the most promising path is um a big magnetic confinement fusion device called ITER which is currently being built in the south of France. And ITER is um, very expensive and and on a a very big scale, uh, but we'll probably show net energy gain using the magnetic approach. But we'll start to test out some of the engineering issues around a prototype power plant. Now, it is not a prototype power plant, but it will start to solve, it will start to look at at least some of those engineering challenges. So I, I think one possible path for fusion could be uh, ETA gets finished. They're successful in doing the um, testing out net energy gain and showing it can work in the magnetic way, which I think they almost certainly will, because you know previous experiments with magnetic confinement have got very close. And they'll test out some of the engineering things. And then the private sector could come in at that point and say, oh, if you're doing it on that scale, it's going to be really expensive and we're going to have really low what are called learning rates. So, you know, the smaller you can make a technology, the faster you learn how to make it even cheaper. Um, so I think that's that could be the time when the private sector really comes in and says, we can do it for you, or we can, but we can make them smaller and, and cheaper and therefore we can make the learning rate higher in making this technology more effective. But, you know, that's just a, one scenario. There are lots right. of other ones. Uh, if the US government and maybe other nations too decided to really, really push the laser-based approach, then maybe that could be the one uh, where, you know, we see the most progress towards... Do, do, a, a do you think platform. some of these existing private sector companies like Commonwealth Fusion Systems, I think another one's TEA Technologies... Do you see them as legitimate players here? Absolutely. I mean, some of them are working on really um, interesting approaches. And like I say, because we don't know what works, I think it makes a huge amount of sense to let entrepreneurs and innovators just see what sticks to the wall. And, you know, a lot of them aren't going to get there because a lot of the designs won't work or they'll have to pivot to slightly different designs. And, and that's absolutely fine. The yeah. the one um, the ones that are looking at fusion reactions that aren't deuterium and tritium, I am more skeptical of personally because that reaction just takes so much more energy uh, to get going. Um, obviously, never say never. The one that I'm probably most excited about in, in on paper anyway is Commonwealth Fusion Systems, just because um, they're really building on top of a uh, a very very you know what the public laboratories have done is build up this huge body of knowledge about what does work, and uh, no one is anywhere near as far ahead as the public laboratories in the UK and the US and the, you know, the international collaboration ones that they, they really are the only people who've gotten anywhere close to doing this um, because they're the only ones who've actually run with real fusion fuel for, for a start um, or, or that at least they were until about two years ago. So, um, but the thing that's quite nice about Commonwealth Fusion Systems is they're really building on tried and tested uh, Tokamak technology, but then they're saying, Hey, you know what? 
Um, the thing that really makes this work is having really powerful magnetic fields. So if we could just find a way to dramatically improve that part of the technology, um, we could make this dramatically smaller and dramatically easier as well. Um, so I, I like that approach because they're really just doing this one change. Um, and they've got some really promising technology to do it as well. You know, some of the advances they've made in superconductors are really exciting and, and probably stand alone as inventions. Um, finally, uh, we're talking about the use case, the use case for fusion. Uh, it mm. seems to me that there's a there would be a strong use case, as you just mentioned, right here on Earth, but also in space where we're going to need energy. Uh I, th I think I haven't really heard much of that mentioned in all the excitement about fusion, but I, <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I, I've I've thought about it, and I bet you have too. I I certainly have, yeah. So I mean, just for the benefit of people listening, um, once you're wanting to explore space, and I think it's part of the human psyche to to want to explore unknown frontiers. So I think we want to do that, right? I think most people would take that as a given. If you want to go beyond the very local area uh like the moon and mars it's very very difficult to do it with conventional rocket technology because um essentially you have to carry the fuel with you um so you know imagine if you're trying to have a a wood-fired uh, uh interstellar rocket you know the amount of wood you have to carry with you is just going to make life much more difficult it's going to be difficult to get into orbit and then um to uh to actually get the thrust you need now one of the great things about nuclear fusion is that it is the most high energy density so amount of energy per kilogram reaction that we have access to uh, on earth so it's the it's the highest energy fuel stuff that we can possibly imagine and it is basically the only one that is going to be able to do this uh, longer distance travel because it can get us, you know, uh, up to the speeds that we need to, to actually make some real progress across, uh, across space. Uh, and so, as I like to say, you know, star power is literally the only energy source that can take us to the stars. So we should be doing it for that reason as well. Absolutely. Arthur, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure.